everyone, and welcome to Writers Drinking Coffee. This is a podcast where writers sit around, drink tasty beverages, and talk about writing, publishing, and the whole creative process. There will be rants and raves and opinions that may not agree, but are lovingly delivered. We do not censor ourselves, so consider us PG-13. Today's gallery includes Chaz and Karen Brenchley, and me, Jeannie Warner. This is episode 163, an interview with Laura Ann Gilman. Welcome, Laura Ann. Hi, and uh, thanks for having me. Oh, I'm so delighted. I, I have been ex- exotically admiring your books for quite some time. I'm going to have to call you the queen of the miniseries. You have so many different <laughs> worlds that must be whirling around in your head in there. I joke that my brain is kind of like a storeroom and a lot of things get thrown back in there and just kind of sit and, and chat with each other. So yeah, I never know what's in there when I open the door. Now, I confess I found you a little bit later than Chaz and Karen, who've known you forever, I'm sure. <laughs> but I first read your Sylvan investigations, and were they all gathered together first? Because I had when I bought the book, I realized, it's like, wait, I've read these stories before. Have they been published in other places? Uh, the Sylvan investigations um, were four novellas that were sort of spin-offs from the Costa Nostradamus world. There had been 10 novels and a number of short stories beforehand. And I had originally written them for my Patreon. And people were kind of asking, well, are there any more Cosa stories or any more Cosa novels? And so I said, fine. And we did them individually at first, yeah. And then I realized if I wanted to have a print edition because they were novellas, I didn't really want to do individual novellas. I put all four of them together um under a single umbrella title because they all they read as a continuous story well there's two beautiful pieces in that one uh yes they are they're wonderful sort of uh like like film noir they're a detective series it can it's set kind of now but it could the tone of it is a little bit old-fashioned and uh, that's a good plug for people to remember to follow their favorite writers on patreon because you can get some of this stuff and you could also suggest stuff. I have people all the time who are my patrons who are just kind of like, okay, so are we going to see X next? And I'm like, mm, let me go see. And, um, you know, a couple months down the road, it might yeah. show up. Yeah. Is, are, are, these, are these things that you hadn't thought of doing? Uh, I think of doing an awful lot of things. <laughs> like time, you take that however you like. Um, but time is limited. Spoons are limited. So... If somebody says, I want to see this, I'm much more likely to bump it up to the top of the pile. I'm sorry you guys can't see me because, as Chaz and Karen know, I talk with my hands. Half of this discussion is happening with my hands. Um, But if somebody says, oh, I want to see that, um, or especially if somebody says, I'd pay money to see that, immediately it goes to the top of the list. Because I am, yeah, I, I, I am motivated by two things, praise and money. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's a beautiful truth to know about yourself. <laughs> does does that work for everybody here? <laughs> yeah, I I like them both, but yeah, the greatest of these is money. I mean, if I said, "Oh, Karen, I simply adore your writing. Could you do me a short story in the line of Robin Hood about this character?" I would give you money for it. Your answer would be, "Of course." Yeah, you want to see the ones I already have. <laughs> exactly. exactly. When do you want it, and how long do you want it? Again, take that however you want. Um, 
Sorry, I, I'm very tired. <laughs> Things like that are going to happen. We understand. Tell us about, because we've had a lot of different folks to talk about world building. Your, your Cosa Nostradamus are different than your, your Grail Quest or your Devil's West. So how do you, do you plot it all out in advance of thinking this is how the world is? Or are you character or is it all about story? What's your approach in all of this? I am very definitely character driven. Um, I'm also scenario driven. Okay. Say um, a scene will pop into my head and I won't necessarily know where it came from or who these characters are, but I'm going to have this scene uh, and it will expand from there. I have notebooks, most of them only half filled because that's how writers work, yeah. just filled with things that I've jotted down, ideas, scenarios, sometimes dialogue. A lot of times dialogue comes to me first. Some and it'll just kind of sit there. Or some sad exchange or fraught exchange or it could be anything. Um and I will just build from there. And then once I have enough momentum, I can see where it goes, whether it's gonna be a short story, if it's gonna be a novel. Um sometimes I don't really know. Uh the funny thing <laughs> about the devil's no, seriously, the thing about the devil's oh, rest is I had originally written a flash fiction piece. Um, because I was teaching at a workshop and I asked my students to write a very short piece in class that had an antagonist, a protagonist, and a narrator. Three individual voices. Okay. And because I try to be fair about this, I did the same thing. So I wrote it and I sort of put it aside and looked at it later and thought, oh, this is a really cool short story. Um, which has now been reprinted like four times. And then I said, oh, this is an interesting world. Let me write something else in it. And I sold that story. And I said, all right, let's do something from a female point of view. And I started writing the story in about 15 or 20,000 words. And I thought, this is not going to be a short story. <laughs> and, that's, and that became Silver on the Road. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I, I don't I, always know what it's going to be when I start. I, I I never do unless it's actually been commissioned as a short story. Um, mostly they turn into novellas. Um, I started I started writing a Sherlock Holmes on Mars thing just for fun a couple of months ago on my coffee account, um, and and it was going to be a short story. And, <laughs> and, and then it was a novelette, and then it was a novella, and now it's a novel. Um, it's a short novel. But all Sherlock Holmes novels are short novels, so they some are. things are just to that length. There really yeah. are some stories that should not be novels, and it's not to say that you know to, to to knock on them. It's not to say that they're not as engaging or as interesting or as complicated. It's just that's the natural length. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, I have a, I I have a thing, um, where I have. And I've talked about this with Katie Murphy um, because she adheres to absolute regulation. So if it's under 40,000, it's a novella. If it's over 40,000, it's a novel. Um, but I've, I've written so many things that are sort of between 45 and 55,000 words, which are absolutely novellas because they have the, the structure and the mm -hmm. pacing of a novella. It's yeah. not a novel. It doesn't have that depth or complexity i think I also a, some of sorry go ahead some of it may be i i can't speak for katie although i have a suspicion you and i probably 
uh, consumed in our youth a lot of the old detective novels. Oh, how I? Yeah, um, that were very much, they were short, they were punchy, they had that structure of a novella. And that's kind of what I was going for with the Sylvan Investigations, um, where there isn't a subplot. Yeah, exactly. Okay, here's a random question that I've never thought of before, but you guys are the perfect (laughs) people to be in on it. Everybody gets one answer and you get a moment to think about it. If there was anybody that could make a Sherlock Holmes full-length novel and actually pull that mother off. Mm-hmm. Because I'm I'm torn right now. I'm thinking I'm thinking Jonathan L. Howard. Alive or dead? Yeah, that was my could be my question. Yeah. Oh, let's go for alive now because Oh, okay. Alive now. I mean, this isn't wishing anybody dead here. <laughs> Sorry, Jonathan, I love you. Um, I, I, I totally have an answer to this, and his name is completely eluding me, though he's a very good friend of mine. Um, I, will, I, will, I will come last. Well, no, because mine is um, of the really good friend of yours who wrote Air. But Jeff Ryman. Jeff Ryman. Yeah, I, I mean, I did, I did, have you read his book about Oz? <laughs> yes, exactly. I've read yeah. his book about Oz. He, uh, he, would, he would turn it upside down and inside out, and it would be fabulous. Yeah. Um, Laura? Who you got? Who the or Anne, pardon me. Okay, I've got I've got one that is kind of out of left field. Okay. Mm-hmm. Robin McKinley. Oh, oh yes. Oh. Oh, I like that. Oh. Yeah, yeah she totally. Could do it. Oh. Um and and I I am I, I have remembered my friend's name, so that's good. <laughs> John Courtney Grimwood. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Although it wouldn't be a novella, you know, it would be. Would, no, that's the point. It would be. Well, a, yeah. you know, if we're talking it, it, a full-length yeah. novel, I. Oh, it would, I want yeah, to go it back would be to more this, than full-length. Yeah. <laughs> I want to go back to this Robin McKinley idea because oh, you yeah. know what I love about that would make her perfect. The thing I'm thinking of a failure is in so many novels, you almost go too deep into the character. I mean, we go with them to the bathroom. They go everywhere with them. Uh-huh. Robin takes you on the emotions and thoughts. But she doesn't give you everything. She gives you enough mm-hmm. to just keep you going. So that's an excellent choice. She, yeah. she gives you enough to work with, but then you have to yeah. do some work. Oh, yeah. tasty. Tasty. Yeah. yeah. So tell me about, because this is in a different times, your newest book coming out shortly, Uncanny Times. Is that likewise a little bit sleuthy? It seems to be from reading the cover. Um. I think pretty much everything I write at heart is probably some kind of mystery, Uh, not intentionally, but as I was just saying, I grew up, my mother adored mysteries, my dad read mysteries, that was the first thing I read even before I found science fiction and fantasy. And I love the the structure. I, I should preface this by saying that I tend to think of fantasy as a style and mystery as a structure. So the two go really well together. Um, I can see that. Yeah. Romance, romance and mystery are structure. Fantasy, horror, those are uh, forms. So you can mix and match. Yeah. Um, Doug, Doug Winter once said, horror isn't a genre, it's an emotion. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I, I, I like to work with that. Yeah. But um, Uncanny Times is, there is a mystery at the heart of it. But the mystery is so integrated into the fantastical. Uh, people are calling it a supernatural detective 
novel. It's not really accurate, not certainly not the way that um, mm -hmm. Sylvan Investigations or any of the Kosin or Stamas books are. It is historical fantasy. And I joke, and it's not really a joke, that this book came out of me spending 15 years yelling at the TV screen while I was watching Supernatural, huh. saying, that is terrible world building. Why are you doing that? Oh, my God. I mean, I love the show. I watched it for 15 seasons. But I would constantly be yelling at them, like, no, yeah. don't, no, bad, bad writers. Yes, I, I um, agree. So I finally said to myself, okay, Gilman, how would you do it then if you're going to you know, shoot off your mouth? Well, I, when you when you talk about it, the first thing is it's Rosemary and Aaron Harker. Any relation? Yes. Uh, probably not. Okay. You know, they're they're, they're immigrants, so the names get changed. Uh, oh, but it was they definitely because the, the the first of the famous Jonathan Harkers immediately came to mind. In yes. This. Okay. It was it was very definitely an homage. Mm -hmm. Um, but there are, there are some secrets about the family, some things that aren't known yet. Beautiful. Uh, it is set in 1913. An interesting uh, in, time. Um, Very in, in, interesting in, time. In America or? In America. In right. America. Okay. It is, it is what I refer to as a blue collar Gilded Age fantasy novel. Hmm. Because like it, was the, it was the Gilded Age, but the main characters are more along the lines of blue collar workers. Sure. They are monster hunters. They are part of a group called the Huntsmen. Oh, cool who basically are, I'm trying to think how much to say without spilling, a lot of the reviews have already spilled massive amounts of spoilers, so I shouldn't worry too much about it, but Huntsmen are, um, it's a family family job, family line. Most, um, no, pretty much all of them are descendant from um, families that had fey blood in them. Oh. So they basically stand between the uncanny world, which is all the supernatural and the human mortal world, or just the human world, because there are mortal uncannies. Uh, and generally, they're, they're basically the, the peacekeepers in a lot of ways, except where if, if an uncanny becomes a danger, they go in and take care of it, however they take care of it, which usually involves knives or guns. Mm. So why not it is... I was going to say, why 1913? Is this, uh, I mean, that was, let's see, that was women's suffrage that year, wasn't it? And there was so much going on so much uh, going worldwide, on. but American history. I wanted to set it pre-World War One, Right. Because this is a time where technology, it was really in many ways the start of the mo a modern age, not the modern age, but a modern age, where technology and science was starting to be standardized and, and standard. But there was still a lot of superstitions. There was a lot of ignorance. And it was just a really interesting time to be playing with supernatural elements without having to go into any kind of medieval feel. Yeah. But I also loved it because society was in such chaos at that time, but they didn't know it. It was yeah. there was uncertainty. There was this growing sense of unease, even among people who didn't know what was going on. This was a time of massive strike breaking, of you know, suffrage, um, violence, all of this stuff going on underneath the surface that we know as the Gilded Age. Um, <laughs> the dark underbelly of the Gilded Age. Yes, very much so. And it was fascinating. And there was also huge waves of immigration happening. 
And one of the things I wanted in this world is that it's not a type of supernatural. It's not, we're not dealing with werewolves. We're not dealing with Chupacabra. We're, we're dealing with all of it. Yep. Basically it's, it's everything that was native to the area and everything the immigrants brought with them. Yeah. Yes. Excellent. Um, um, but you, I mean, you, 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 you said this in 1913 for one, among other reasons, because you wanted it, um, you wanted to pre World War One. That's one year pre-World War One. I. I happen to know that you're working on the second Huntsman novel as we <laughs> um, and, and hopefully there will be more in the future. So you're going to have to deal with the war, aren't you? Yes, uh, very much. I've actually started in, in their references in the first book, and I actually just sold a short, a short story set in the world. Um, I sold it to uh, Sunday Morning Transport. Oh, lovely. That is um, different characters. Yeah. But... There are references in the first book to huntsmen who have been sent to Europe to help because the uncanny there are getting restless. Right. Ah. Okay. Um, and that will continue. This is yeah. going to be very much, in a, it's a U.S. set series, but it is aware of the fact yeah. that all of these things are going on. The story I sold actually takes place in Eastern Europe okay. where we have some um, huntsmen who are on a hunt and are having to deal with um there's a there's a line in the story that not everything hunting them is is uncanny mm-hmm. Ooh, <laughs> they're very much aware of the fact that there's a lot of military stuff happening around them that they're trying to stay out of yeah but also, yeah it's it's definitely that's definitely a, a, a sub a, a not a subplot but a a shadow running through the yeah, story a thread running underneath yeah Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's that's really cool. Do you think the huntsman would ever go someplace um, like Australia or um, into Africa? That would be cool. Um, yes, it would be absolutely cool. I my methodology is to put my boots on the ground as often as possible before I write about something. And since I haven't been to either of those continents, it I would basically I would have to um, be able to swing a trip there yeah. I, I would if anybody wants would to, to take you this. all over australia because <laughs> we would have the best time and uh you've got to see sydney below it it makes everything that that uh, gaiman wrote about real <laughs> yeah uh, but yeah i when i when i was writing the devil's west i literally was traipsing all over um the midwest I, I spent more time in Kansas than I ever thought I would, mm. which is <laughs> I, I, not I that think... I ever thought I was going to spend time in Kansas. I, I, I have to say that if anybody's listening, Kansas is an absolutely gorgeous state. I will hear no, no bad mouthing of Kansas, the, the place. <laughs> it's Some of the people I ran into. Okay. But they're yeah. everywhere. But the, the grasslands and all of that is one of the most gorgeous places I've ever been. It's flat. It's It's not not flat. flat. It's not flat. It's not flat. It's rolling. It's rolling plains, which is a very different thing. And also some of the most amazing, amazing. um, Oh, I'm blanking on the word, but there's a place you can go to. And I actually, of course, because I always do, I wrote a story about it Mm -hmm. where there are some monoliths standing. Oh, you were, you were, where you're standing was the bottom of an ocean. Okay. And there are these huge, these massive stones remaining right. of what had okay. once been a canyon. And it is one of the most terrifying places I've ever been. Wow. The whales put them there, you know. We've got to go. 
I have no idea. Well, see, I normally see Kansas after coming out of the Rocky Mountains. And so they're one of the first places um, that we would go because my mom's childhood best friend lived there. So we would go out of the Rocky Mountains to Kansas. And it's, I'm sorry, it's it's still even, I want to go see the monoliths so desperately now, but um, it's it's, it's not mountainous. It is definitely not mountainous, especially if you're coming down off them. But I mean, I've seen flat. I, I grew up in, on the East Coast. I've been to Long Island. Um, sorry, Long Island. <laughs> I, I just want to say thanks about one other thing, that there has been, this time in America, this 1900 to, let's just say, World War One. I, I feel it hasn't really properly been looked at. We kind of stopped celebrating everything Civil War, and for a lot of, especially you know, science fiction and fantasy set in those times, there isn't a lot. So dare we hope this might be a trend? Yeah, it would be nice because it's a, it's a fascinating time. Um, there's a lot to, especially if you are working in alternate history, there is so much going on politically and socially. Mm-hmm. It would yeah. it would be a lot of fun. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say, um, I bet Harry Turtledove has... Yeah, <laughs> Harry Turtledove has been everywhere. Tom. Well, we'll ask him, and he has his he has his own thing with the West. But I was just pondering all of this. There's, we we're starting to see little bits of it here and there. I mean, there's a little bit of Lovecraft country. And I, I want to say, yeah. I want to say that Dora has done this period. Um, Dora Gross. I don't. My brain is saying she has, but I can't come up with a title. Theodora Gross. Um, Theodore so Goss. I need to check on that. Yes. Goss, sorry. Goss. Goss. Yes. Goss. Yeah. yeah. He said Theodore Goss. Yeah. 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 Um, and I, I can't, I just want, my brain is saying she did, and I can't come up with any particular titles, but certainly she would have a good handle on it. Um, she did, because she came over, she was the one who did a lot of the, what if the offspring of all of the 1880s monsters and people yes. and characters. Mm-hmm. Yes, that's, that's right. Yes. That's right. Yes, all yeah. of that. I may have read some of that. Me too. I'm, I, I also. Yeah, I think <laughs> yeah. I might have, possibly. We should get her on. Yeah. Well, and see, this also, is how anthologies happen also. It's um, totally how anthologies happen. But I, we people have a chance to see you live shortly. Aren't you talking at the next SF and SF at the American Bookbinders Museum? I am. I am. It's always fun going back down there. Uh, I always have a really good time and it's going to be the first, well, originally it was going to be the first launch event and I have a launch event uh, at a tiny little bookstore um, just outside of Seattle Hmm. the Friday before. So basically I'm doing that, then I'm getting on a plane and coming down to San Francisco. Uh, This is, this is, if there's anybody happens to be listening who, who is anywhere near Seattle area, Ballard, Ballast, Ballast Books in Bremerton. It's a tiny, tiny little genre bookstore, and the owner has been such incredible supporter of genre and writers. I was like, I want to start there. Oh, unfortunately, they agreed, so that was I fun. Have, a bunch I of my that. hockey girls moved up that direction, so we will spread the word. <laughs> yeah. So what is the date of your SFNSF? Um, um, that is the 23rd. Is that Sunday? October 23rd. Yeah. Yep. So it is October 23rd. Yeah, 22nd at Ballas and 23rd. And then I come home and sleep for about six hours. And then I have <laughs> yeah. to get back to work. 
because okay. the second book is due. So yeah. Now, <laughs> uh, how, how, how many are you projecting? Seriously. Um, okay. Here's a funny story. Mm-hmm. My contract with Saga Simon Schuster was for two standalone novels. Ooh. You're not doing and, and I wrote the book that was originally called Huntsman. Mm-hmm. And I sent it off to Joe Monty, my editor. Mm-hmm. And then I waited and I waited and I waited. And I started mm-hmm. writing the second book, mm-hmm. uh, which second standalone. Yeah. And about 25,000 words into the standalone. Mm-hmm. And I get this call from Joe saying, okay, I read it. I love it. I'm thinking, thank God. Mm-hmm. And he goes, so you're going to write me a sequel? Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> and I said, uh, are you going to pay me for it? <laughs> so we turned the second book in the contract yeah. to sequel, and yeah. I put aside the the standalone. Actually, I'm writing it for my Patreon right now. Cool. Um, and as I was doing research for the second book, I came upon an idea for the third book. So... Excellent. Let's just say the status depends on how well the first book does. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Speaking I, 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 I once wrote a novel and sent it to my editor, and she phoned it up and said, I really, really want to know what happens next. And I said, I don't do sequels, because I never had <laughs> up to that point. Everything had been standalone. Um, and, and she said, she laughed and said, I know you don't, but I really want to know what happens next. Um, uh, and, and, and I phoned her back about an hour later and said, okay, I know what happens next. <laughs> it's amazing how inspired we can be when an editor says, so. Money and appreciation, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Exactly. So which yes. I want to ask a question though, because you accidentally dropped something that I saw online or somewhere about it. It takes a village to raise a book. We've talked to editors before. Tell us about your editor and publicist and what it takes to make a book really work and sell well for you. Oh, man. Okay. Um, I've worked with Joe Montina. I've I've basically worked with three editors in my career. Uh, we won't talk about the mystery side where there were four books and five editors because that was mm-hmm. a cluster duck. Um the first editor I worked with, Mary Teresa Hesse at um, Luna, Harlequin. I was with her for 12, 13, 14, 15 books. Wow. If, we, wow. if we include the paranormal romance novellas. Of course we uh, did. And, and she was marvelous and um, really just gushed about my writing so much that I wanted to make her happy. And, you know, it was a good relationship. Um, the past three, four books now, I've been working with Joe Monte at Saga. And Joe has this ability of, I get the, I get the revision letter. He, he takes his time. Um, and anybody who's worked with Joe is laughing because yes, he takes his time. But I get these, <laughs> I get these revision letters and I read them and it makes me so angry and so <laughs> insulted. And, and then I go, Oh, son of a bitch. Yeah. Okay, fine. But I'm going to do it better than what you suggested. And I know he does this deliberately. He knows exactly what buttons to push. Uh, in that he's right when he says, okay, this didn't quite work or this work. Can we have more of this? And then he'll suggest something knowing full well that he's a really good editor, but he's not 
a, a writer. He's not the storyteller. So he's going to make me think I can, I can come up with a better solution than that. And it's a fun, it, it, it's, it's frustrating, but it's also kind of a fun way to work. It's, it's a, a good collaboration for me. It probably wouldn't work for everybody, but for me, it works really well. So that's, um, as I said, we've, we've done uh, the Devil's West books and now this, and I think we've kind of got it down to a system now. So I just kind of wait for the editorial letter to kick me in the ass and, and get me back to work. Yeah. And actually, I have to say also, when it comes to taking, creating a vill using a village, needing a village rather, um, the art department has to come into this. I got incredibly fortunate with um, Uncanny Times. The cover is one of the most gorgeous covers I've ever had. It really is. It's just beautiful. And what's funny is they sent me originally a mock-up for the cover, and I looked at it and I went, this is an absolutely gorgeous cover, and it's completely for a different book. It doesn't work for this book at all. And a lot of times, publishers have been like, well, tough, this is the cover we put together. Well... I got an email back saying, okay, well, these are some of the other things we were considering. And they, they sent me 12 different mock-ups. This is, this is the advantage of the digital age. It used to be they had a painting made and that was it. You were stuck with it. They sent me like 12 different digital versions. And uh, I looked at all of them. Anything to see those. Can, are we allowed to? Can you share them? Because uh, I, I would have to, I'd have to ask. Okay. Because they may have reused them for other people and I don't want to try yeah, to share. Um, and I said, okay, this one, I love this, this, and this about it. And this one, I love this, this. Can we take those elements and put them together? And they did. Ooh. And I love this cover beyond all belief. And other people seem to also, because every time I show it, they're just like, oh my God, that's gorgeous. I'm like, I know. Uh <laughs> it has that particular shade of green that's just beyond the, uh, okay, that's almost the, color of the sky when the tornadoes start yes quite, yes very yes. much yeah um and um hi Cass sorry it's a podcast now the cat has shown up of course um so you may hear him purring he is a very loud purr uh so I have to give a shout out to the art department they were amazing and the production I've seen the finished book production is gorgeous these these are things that that make me happy because um, I've had some bad experiences with covers and, and production values before. And, and then I chatted I, a few sorry. times with different publicists, but you mentioned you really love yours. What all does mm -hmm. a publicist do for you? Oh, that's a loaded question you ask any writer. I know. Um, I know. Not enough, far, too much. <laughs> far, far, far too often the answer is publicist. What's a publicist? Uh, it's not malice on the part of the publisher. It's simply that they only Economics. have so many people in the department. Yeah, they only have so many people in the department and there's only so many hours in the day and everybody in publishing is already overworked. But uh, at the very start of this process, when we actually start thinking about, okay, this is publication date, this is where we're going. I started getting emails um, from Lucy Nalen at, at Simon Schuster. And I was like, oh, okay, a publicist. Okay, this is nice. And I figured I'd get a couple of emails from her and that would be it. No, she's been a go-getter. She not only will suggest things and come up with things, she was sending the book out. She was making sure that the galleys went out. She was following up. Um, 
as the book comes closer and closer to publication, I'm getting emails from her saying, okay, this, this review just came in and this is going to be uh, running at this date. And I'm just like, oh my God, I, I love this woman. She's never allowed to leave. I will chain <laughs> her to her desk if need be. Um, apparently I'm not the only person who thinks she's marvelous because she just got a promotion. So I'm very, very proud of her. I wonder if it's and just, hopefully what, what she are will the, stay. is it skills of attention to detail and project management then? I mean, somewhere out there, somebody has to say they want to be a publicist. Usually what happens is somebody says they want to be a publicist. What they mean is they want to go into advertising or they want to work in, in TV or something like that. And, pu and publishing is the entry level job. So we train them up and then they go on to places that actually pay real money. Well, wasn't that and, gal from Sex in the City? She was a famous publicist for people. Yeah, they, they, they start their own firms. Right. Um, publishing, sadly, does not pay anybody well, uh, even the CEOs by relative standards. But generally, if you can find somebody who, like, like editors, um, are in it because they love the book business and they love books, you hold on to them for as long as you can um, and hope that nobody steals them away. Yeah. Excellent. So you're working on this sequel for that. What advice would you give to somebody now that you've been doing this for maybe a couple of years? You're like 25, right? So. <laughs> oh, I wish. Oh, <laughs> what, if, yeah. what have you learned that if you could distill it down and say, I wish somebody had told me this earlier, what would it be? Oh, it's tough for me because I grew up in a publishing family and that my mother was a writer. My uncle, her, her brother uh, was an editor, New York editor for decades. Uh, so I knew going in, I was, I was kind of forewarned, but I think the, the information that I would give somebody, this is a absolutely fabulous way to spend your life and a terrible way to make a living and never, <laughs> and, and accept that, embrace it. Uh, wallow in that reality because you have you have choices to make yeah and once you make that choice you can't second guess yourself you can change your mind at yeah. any point you can leave and you can come back this is it's the door does not shut and lock and you can never come back but you but still you have, have to, to put be, your whole heart and soul into making a choice and be pragmatic about it I think if I were going yeah. to tell anybody advice it would say be pragmatic about any any career in the arts yeah. because you have to plan for the inevitable down to, excuse me max get your nose out of there thank you <laughs> sorry the dog just showed up yeah. um but yeah pragmatism is essential to the creative i think because we can get a little carried away in our own worlds and in our dreams and what we hope that this next project so it's always about this next project may be the one that is it capital i capital t right and at the same time you have to be aware of the fact that yeah until that time you still have to pay the bills and you still have to interact with other human beings and allegedly. you still have to allegedly and you still have to remember to make your doctor's appointments you know all of these things that are day-to-day -day stuff and you have to pay for all this stuff yeah uh, it's very very hard to write a book while you're living under a bridge I hear it. You have to read a lot and experience the world. And I liked your boots on the ground theory. Go, go look at it. Don't just write about mm -hmm. it. Well, yeah. every place feels different. It's true. 
Well, we will put links to Laura Ann's newest book and other things mentioned during this podcast on our website, which is www.ridersdrinkingcoffee.com. Laura Ann, thank you so much for coming with us today. That was my pleasure. And uh, we all look forward to going down to SFNSF down at the American Bookbinders and hearing you talk. Are you reading from Uncanny Times? I think if I didn't, I would probably be um, run out of town on a rail. Well, that won't do. (laughs) Thank you for being with us today. You've been listening to Writers Drinking Coffee, a labor of love and enthusiasm put together by the hosts. Our main web support magic is brought to you by Deirdre Schween, and our sound engineer and backup web spiders are Dave Welsh and John Schmidt. Our intro music is Pretty Made Milking a Cow, and our exit music is Breakfast with the Morning Person, both by Michael Engberg. Our podcast sponsors are Jackal Designs and Arm Street. And hey, thanks for listening. <laughs>